0: Hi everybody, so great to be with all of you, great to see you again. If you want to take out your message notes, we are finishing up a series that Andy started here about three weeks ago on uh, relating to humans. And two weeks ago, Stacy brought a message about how do you relate to difficult people. Last week, Andy talked about how do we relate to destructive people. And today, uh, Anthony and Will and I are going to be talking about how do you relate to people who are different from you. People who are different in their culture, different in their, in their ethics, different in their values, people who are different in their politics, their gender, their religion. What does the Bible say about how we're supposed to relate to people like that? So when Andy asked us to, to do this message, I immediately thought of uh, an encounter that Jesus had with someone in the Bible that I think perfectly illustrates how Jesus did this. And it's the encounter he had with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And it tells us how he relates to people who are not like him. Now, we're going to dig deeply into this conversation that he's had with this woman. But one of the things I discovered is that this is the longest conversation Jesus has with anybody in the Bible. And you would think that his longest conversation would have been with one of the disciples, or maybe John the Baptist, or maybe some kind of a debate with a Pharisee. But his longest conversation is with a different kind of person. It's with a Samaritan woman. And in this encounter, we find that there are four important lessons that we can can draw from Jesus' model here. Four important lessons on how to relate to people who are different from us and they all have to do with love, that's the bottom line, it's all about love. But there's some things I want us to write down today, and here's the first lesson we can learn from what Jesus does in his meeting with this woman. And it's this, that love reaches across barriers. Love reaches across barriers. We're gonna look here in John chapter four, starting in verse four, the words are on the screen, they're also in your notes. It says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now let's unpack where this is taking us. This conversation that Jesus has is in an unlikely place with an unlikely person, and it's at an unlikely time. The reason it's an unlikely place is that Jesus is in the wrong neighborhood for a Jewish man. You see, the Samaritans and the Jews would have nothing to do with each other. They despised each other. And the reason is that the Samaritans were of Jewish heritage, but hundreds of years earlier, they had intermixed with Gentiles. They had intermarried with Gentiles. So now, according to the Jews, their Jewishness was not pure. It wasn't what it was supposed to be. They looked at them as a mixed race. They looked at them as sellouts. They weren't the right kind of folks anymore. Their ethnicity was different. The way they practiced religion was different. Their culture was different. Their values were different. Their politics were different. So to the Jews, there was nothing good about Samaritans. In fact, some Jews, when they traveled from, from south to north, would go around Samaria just so they wouldn't have to sully themselves by going through this impure culture. So it's an unlikely place. The conversation is with an unlikely person because Jewish men did not talk to Samaritan women. Not only that, but as we're about to find out, as we dig deeper into this story, this is a woman who's had a pretty rough go of things. She's had five husbands, and now she's just living with a guy. So she's been rejected by the Jews because of her heritage, and she's rejected by her own people because of her lifestyle choices. Now there's a third reason that this is an unlikely conversation. It's at an unlikely time. The Bible tells us back in verse six that it was, about, it was about the sixth hour, it says. That means it was around noon, it was midday. And the reason that's important is because people didn't generally go to the well in the middle of the day. They went in the morning or in the evening when the weather was cooler. So I had to stop and think about this. Why would she be at the well in the wrong time of day? Well, one of the things we have to understand about a well is that the well was not just where you came to quench your thirst for water. It was also where you came to quench your thirst for friendship, for the latest news, for gossip. The well was a social gathering place. And the the other women would have gathered there in the morning or in the evening. But this woman came at high noon in the middle of the day when nobody else is supposed to be there. Now, why would she do that? I think it's because she's ashamed. She has a background. She has a story. She has a reputation that she is not proud of. And she would rather endure the heat of the day than to suffer the heat of other people's judgment. So when she arrives at this well, there's a man, a Jewish man at that, waiting to talk to her. And she's probably thinking, oh great, just what I need, another scandal. But instead of leaving, Jesus engages her in a conversation. And this points out to us the second lesson about relating to people who are different from us. First, remember, love reaches across barriers. And second, love leads with dignity. Love leads with dignity. Why don't you write that down? And Pastor... Anthony is going to come and show us how that looks in our context today.
1: How are we doing, Saddleback? So love leads with dignity. I want to stay immersed in the story because when we read familiar passages, we tend to skip over and miss some of the most significant parts. See, the Bible says that Jesus comes to this well and approaches this Samaritan woman, but the scripture doesn't give her a name. I like her. I like her story. I think she deserves the name. So I'm gonna gonna call her Samantha. I think she deserves the name. I resonate deeply with Samantha's story. And I believe if we all listen to her story and not just scapegoat her, I believe that you will resonate with her story too. So will you let me introduce you to my friend, Sam? Sam grew up in a society that discriminated against her, her, her gender, and her ethnicity. And to not understand this about her is not to understand her at all. Her reality was that Jews despised Samaritans and no self-respecting Jew would be caught dead with a Samaritan. And they especially wouldn't go to Samaria. And this is why I find it interesting that Scripture says that Jesus had to go to Samaria, because truth be told, he didn't have to go to Samaria. Uh, Jews would avoid Samaria. This is why we have the the story about the Good Samaritan because we have this Jewish man that was beaten and robbed and left dead on the side of a road, on a road that he was taking to avoid Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to do something that no other Jew would do. And if we're going to be God's people in this day, then we're going to have to be willing to do things that others are unwilling to do. We're going to have to be willing to love people that others say are unlovable. And this is an all-hands moment. This is really an all-hands moment. Our credibility is on the line because I'm looking around, I'm looking at the conversations happening out there, and, and the hate and the vile and the division is not just happening from the other side. Some of that is coming from our camp. And we gotta—it's a moment we have to look and say, how do we change the narrative? And the only way we're going to change the narrative is if—if if, if God's people begin to look more like Jesus, begin to—to to sound more like Jesus, begin to, to walk more like Jesus, and talk more like Jesus, and love more like Jesus, and do all the things that Jesus did. Because if that's how we're going to change the narrative, and—and and, and this is why I love the passage so much, because. If you want to see what Jesus looks like, he puts himself on full display in John chapter 4. It's the full cross. We get to see how Jesus shows us what reconciliation looks like vertically with God and horizontally with others. He, he, he's destroying the barriers that divide us, our, our gender differences, our religious differences, our racial and ethnic and cultural differences. He's destroying all of these things. Because through Christ, we're not only reconciled to God, but we're reconciled to others. And both of these are happening in this story at the same time, and nothing less of this is the cross. So Jesus is giving us the blueprint on how to love people that are different than us. And he does this first by affirming Sam's dignity. Jesus knows Sam's story. He knows how she grew up. He knows that she grew up feeling unworthy and not good enough and not pretty enough and not, you know, reaching societal standards. He knew this. He, he, he knew that she would hear prayers as a little girl that would say, Lord, thank you that I wasn't born a Gentile. Lord, thank you I wasn't born a woman. Think about that. Think about what that would do growing up hearing this every single day, knowing that there was nothing in in, in in your society, your culture around you, that was gonna portray anything positive about who you are. You're never gonna hear how beautiful you are, how 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 you're worthy. Nothing in culture around you says that you're wonderfully made. You don't hear this in in in, in on social media or on magazine covers or in the news that you are loved. That your life matters, that you're worthy, that, that who you are, not what you do, but who you are is pleasing to God. Imagine that. And Jesus also knows that, that for Sam, it was a double whammy because she's a Samaritan woman, right? So not only was her, her gender wrong, but her ethnicity was wrong, and she, both of them was wrong at the same time. So this was a double whammy. There was this Jewish law that said Samaritan women were considered perpetually unclean. What that meant was no matter where she went, no matter what she did, whatever surface that she touched, it was considered defiled. Imagine what that would do to a person's self-esteem, to their self-worth. I think that would create a hole in their soul. I was mentioning that I resonate with this story. I grew up. In a predominantly white community, about two hours outside of Chicago. And I was born in 1980 to a black man and a white woman. And and just to give you some some context, this is 13 years before I was born. It was uh, the Supreme Court legalized interracial marriages. Yep, 1967, Loving versus Virginia, legalized interracial marriages. So put that in perspective, if I was born 13 years earlier, I would have been born a crime. So at this point, there's not too many mixed babies running around here. In fact, I was the only mixed kid in my entire school, but I did have a sweet hairdo. I think I have a picture I want to show you of my hairdo. This was, <laughs> I had a sweet hairdo. This is what I call like a Michael Jackson meets like an A.C. Slater haircut, right? It's not quite a jerry curl, but it's not quite a mullet either. It's it's this in-between phase. But that was my life. I lived in this in-between. I was too black for the white kids. I was too white for the black kids. I just, I, I felt different. I ended up being friends with, all my friends were black because that was the community that accepted me. But I grew up just feeling different. And I heard all the words, all the names that, was, that could be labeled. I heard the, that was called the N-word, monkey, Oreo, half-breed. I heard it all. But the name that stuck throughout grade school was Afro-Man. I didn't even know it was derogatory. That's just what I thought. Because look at that dude. I just thought it was, that was my life. But I grew up, no one liked me. The girls didn't like me. And if they did, they, they weren't allowed to like me because their parents didn't like me because I was different. So I grew up thinking something was wrong with me. Now, I don't tell you that story to to make you feel sorry for me. God loves me. Jesus saved me. I now know that my my ethnicity was a blessing. I, I tell you that story to remind you that we are surrounded by people that resonate with Sam's story. And that might be you. Some of you today relate to Sam's story. But watch this. Watch this, Sam is sitting at this well all alone, stripped of her dignity, stripped of her self-esteem, stripped of her self-worth. But praise God, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and enters into her story. And instead of ignoring her or or, uh, uh, avoiding her or fearing her or giving her what she deserves, he talks to her. He talks to her. He starts a conversation with her. Jesus affirms Sam's dignity simply by talking to her. Now, notice I say affirms because we can't give somebody dignity. We can only proclaim it. We can only affirm it. God gave us all dignity when he created us in his image. The Bible says that we were created in the likeness or the image of God. So our imago Dei, the imago Dei that that is within us, the image of God that's within us, cries out to be affirmed. It cries out to be acknowledged by others. So you can't give somebody their dignity. You can only acknowledge it. You can only affirm it. And Jesus affirms it by talking to her. It doesn't take much to affirm somebody's dignity. It doesn't take much. Just talk to them. Just, Just talk. Start a conversation. If you can't talk, smile. Smile. Smiling is the universal language of love. But I want you to remember this you will never look in the eyes of someone that isn't loved by God. And if God says that person is worth dying for, then I say that person is worth talking to. And Jesus teaches us that when we love people that are different, there's actually benefits to that. Look what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. He says this, if you love those who love you, What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do do not even the pagans do that. What he's saying is is when you love people who are different or in opposition to you, you're distinguishing yourself from the world. You're, 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 You're being a light in a dark society. And it's not just, uh, God is not just distinguishing you, He's, he's growing you, he's perfecting you, he's perfecting your love. This is why Jesus goes on to say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And this word perfect here isn't the way we define perfect, like mistakeless. Perfect in here, the Greek word is teleos, it actually means bring to its end, to, to mature, to fully mature. Or the best word here is, is to be complete. So what he's saying here is be complete with your love. Love completely. Don't pick and choose who you choose to love. There's no reward in that. Instead, love completely. If we're going to be set apart in this world, in this context... This divisive world that, that is afraid of people's differences, it's gonna, we're going to be distinguished by how we love and who we love. So let me ask you this. Who are the Samaritans in your world? Who are the Samaritans in your world? We all have them. In fact, you're somebody else's Samaritan because we're all different. But who are the people in your world that that you consider different, that you would say, it is very unlikely for me to have a relationship with them? Are they in your city? Are they on your block? Are they in your row right now? Are they sitting right next to you? Don't look. Don't look. But who are your Samaritans? And once you identify the Samaritans, talk to them. Talk to them and then take the next step in relating to people that are different. And it's this, write this down. Love finds a point of common ground. Don't focus on our differences, focus on what we have in common. Start with the point of common ground. Let's let's welcome Pastor Will to teach us the point.
2: Hey, Saddleback family. Hey, I love this. I love this point. Uh, Love finds a point of common ground where we are not to focus on our differences, but focus on what we have in common. You know, Scripture tells us that Jesus, as he arrives at this well, uh, he sits by the well. I'm really encouraged by that, by that picture, that he sits at this well. And and in verse 7, he starts this conversation. I'm going to read it to you. It's on your screen and it's also on your notes. And it says this, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And I just want you to get this picture of Jesus after being tired from his journey. He sits at this well. The well is rocky. It's uneven. It's not the best place to sit, but he sits there. Not because it's comfortable for him, or it's the best place, or his best choice, but he sits there out of love. And that posture as he sits there, it's a posture of invitation. It's a posture of of friendliness. It's a posture of engagement. He sits there and starts engaging with her. He could have turned away and not engaged her, but he does. He, 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 could have, he, he could have hurried it like, you know, let's just get this conversation over with. But he didn't. He was patient with her. As he's sitting there, this is a conversation that could not be hurried. So he starts this conversation. And, and you know, proximity brings empathy. Proximity gives us the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. And so so you and me, just like Jesus, must make time to make meaningful conversations with those that are different from us. And let me ask you this question. We're here at church, so you can't lie. (laughs) But when is the last time you sat with someone who was different from you? You actually took the time, you were patient, and you sat with them, someone who was different from you. Well, Jesus did it. He sat with the Samaritan woman. He, he breaks the rules, as Pastor Buddy said, he breaks the rules. He wasn't supposed to do that, but he did. He, see, me and you at times are going to have to break some rules to show others dignity. It, it might not be what your family does. It might not be what your neighbors do. It, it might not be what your, your friends do. It might not even be what you were taught to do, or it might not be what, you were comfortable, uh, what you're comfortable in doing. But because you love Jesus, you will make time to sit with others that are different from you. And that's why I love Jesus, and that's why I'm so encouraged by his life, because he broke the rules in this moment. And he starts this strong, long conversation with this woman, and he sets a point of common ground. You know, they're both at the well, they're both uh, tired, and they're both thirsty. And Jesus starts with a question. He starts this engagement. He starts with a question. Now, he doesn't ask her, why are you here? Well, no, that could be, that could be, a, that can sound hurtful. He doesn't ask her, why are you alone? No, that could be a reminder of her pain. He, he doesn't ask her, where is your husband? No, that's a reminder of her sin that comes later. But rather, he, he asks her, can I have a drink? And, and that question is a disarming question because it's something that she's able to provide. Just get this picture. She, he's sitting there and he, he asked her a question, a question that she can contribute to. They're at the well, so she's actually able to give water. It's not like Jesus said and sat at the well and said, Hey, Samaritan woman, give me a taco. Like, Jesus, it's a well. You can't have a taco. It's probably, that's my Latino ness, so that's probably what I would have asked for, a taco. But, but no, she, he asked for water. And so it's a disarming question, and he starts this conversation with her. And in verse 10, Scripture says this. He says, Jesus, uh, she says, give me this water. Oh, 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 he, Jesus asked for water. The woman says, why are you asking me for water? And in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that's asking you for water? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's questioning his ability to do it. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, The water I give them will become in them a spring, a water dwelling up eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. See, this point of common ground as he's sitting there asking her questions, this point of common ground is a setup to share about the living water. See, it's here in this part of scripture, in this uncommon conversation with this person that's different from Jesus, that Jesus introduces for the very first time this image of living water. That's powerful. It's with this woman that's different from him that Jesus presents this idea of living water. And this living water that will yield lasting satisfaction, the living water that will bring peace to the soul, the living water that will quench the thirst of the heart What we understand is that the woman was just not thirsty for regular water. There was a bigger need in her life. For years, she's been trying to satisfy that need with different things. and, And she's in a lonely place at the most difficult time of the day. She needs more than water. And it's here that Jesus says, I am the living Water, and in verse 15, she's now asking Jesus for water. Can I have your water? She's begging for his living water. And at first, if, as you read scripture, at first you notice she kind of questions whether Jesus can actually deliver this. She questions his ability to deliver what she needs. She knows she needs this water, but she's like, Can't, well, you don't even have nothing to draw water with. The well is too deep she's questioning his ability to deliver what she needs she knows she needs it but can jesus really fulfill it and but as she sits there with jesus and as they start this conversation she starts to understand that she needs more than water and what she really needs is jesus and as we sit here today here at church we're all sitting here I hope you're comfortable, (laughs) and we're all sitting here. Maybe the question that I want to ask you today is this. Maybe you're tired from your journey. Maybe you're seeking things that you haven't found fulfillment in. Let me ask you this question as we all sit here, and I believe Jesus is here with us, is what are you thirsty for? And maybe you're thirsty for love, or maybe you're thirsty for joy, or you've been seeking significance. You've been trying to find freedom or peace, or you're just trying to find a glimpse of hope. And as you sit here today, I ask you again, what are you thirsty for? Maybe you might be like the Samaritan woman where you hear and you say, Yeah, I believe in this living water, but I don't know if Jesus can actually provide it. I don't know if Jesus can really fulfill my need. And you might feel that God or Jesus might not care about your need, or or you might feel that, that God is so separated from your life that he doesn't understand what you need. And you might see God as this distant God who's up on the high throne ruling, looking down at you, ready to discipline you for all the wrong things you've done. And that might be the picture you have of God. But Scripture paints us another picture of God. God is a God that's close, a God that sits with us. Matter of fact, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8 says this about Jesus. It says, Jesus, who being in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. By taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Jesus is this Jesus that sits with us and, and and he he didn't take advantage of his equality with God, but he humbled himself to be in human likeness, to become a servant. And scripture says that he became obedient to death, even death on the cross so that he can sit with us today and ask us again, what are you thirsty for? And if you knew that everything that you've ever wanted, everything that you've been seeking for could be found in Jesus, why wouldn't you take it? And friends, we we have that ability today to respond just like the Samaritan woman did Once she understood, as she was sitting there, she understood, I need Jesus. Maybe what you need today is to figure out how to work with people who are different from you. But maybe a deeper need is you just might need to say yes to Jesus. So Samaritan woman says, give me this water. And in verse 16, scripture says this. He told her, Jesus, go call your husband and come back. (laughs) That's a powerful moment there. Because she says, wait, I, I have no husband. She replied, and Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So she's sitting there with Jesus. She's trying to gloss over her truth, gloss over her mistakes. She says, she says I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right. And Jesus knows her whole story, just like he knows your story and he knows my story. She's just trying to gloss over the truth, but he knows everything. Sometimes we think that our story surprises God or that our sin surprises God. No, nothing surprises God. And so what Jesus does does in that moment, he, he simply tells her the whole truth about herself. But catch this, he doesn't condemn her. And that leads us to the fourth lesson we learned from Jesus about relating to people who are different from us and treating them with dignity is this, and I think it's probably the most important of the four, and is this. You can write this on your notes Love does not condemn. And Pastor Buddy's going to come back up and finish off.
0: So let's dig a little deeper into her story. We just read that. She's had five husbands, and I had to ask myself, why would she have been married five times? Was it adultery, like I had been told for so many years? Was she a bad person, even a a prostitute? I've heard some preachers say that she was. But is that really what's going on here? Is that what the text says? As a matter of fact, no. That's not what the text says. See, there's a big problem with those theories. How could an adulterous woman in that culture have five husbands? How could that have happened? You see, a woman in her day, in her culture, could not divorce her husband. She didn't have the legal right to divorce a husband. Only a husband could divorce a wife. But second... An adulterous woman could be stoned to death. So if her five marriages had all ended because of her infidelity, by now somebody would have killed her. It was legal. Maybe one husband might have been merciful, but five, probably not. So I don't think that's what's going on here. Maybe she was widowed five times, but again, five times? Not very likely. But if we must have some kind of explanation, if we must jump to some conclusion about this woman as to why she's in this condition, well, consider this possibility. Why not jump to this conclusion? Perhaps, perhaps, the woman has had five husbands because she is barren. You see, in her society, in Samaritan culture, A woman's value was in her ability to bear children. In fact, there are some scholars of ancient Middle Eastern culture who believe that a Samaritan man was morally obligated to divorce a barren wife. You say, well, she can't give me any kids. Why should I put up with her? So he divorces her. And so she marries again. She hopes again, maybe this time Maybe this time, maybe the next time. And she's going from husband to husband, hoping for fulfillment and for value, hoping to be able to bear children so that she can hold her head up. But instead, she's been put away as worthless, divorced. And now, after five husbands, and possibly, most likely, beyond childbearing age, she's given up hope. And her hopelessness has led her to a compromise in her lifestyle. Now she's just living with a guy. She's just looking for companionship. So her dignity is gone. Even her dreams are stillborn. Now, certainly, this idea, this possibility that she is barren is just a guess. I'm just guessing, that's just what I'm trying to draw out of the evidence, what evidence there is here. It's just a guess. It's conjecture. But it's no more conjecture than just assume that this woman is a prostitute or a woman of ill repute. Nothing in the text tells us why she has had five husbands. And you know why? Because it's none of our business. (laughs) But somehow, somewhere along the way, the customary accepted explanation for this woman, is that we now accuse her of bringing this lifestyle upon herself by calling her character into question. Now of course she's responsible for her decisions, we're all responsible for our decisions, but we've just assumed the worst about her without knowing the whole story. And I think that it's our own self-righteousness, our own need to be better than somebody that has led us to conclude that this woman has a wicked heart. Everybody has a backstory. Everybody has a history. We need to be careful not to jump to conclusions about people who are different from us just out of suspicion. We don't know what kind of pain that they have been through. And we might be surprised by the truth. As we read on in this story, we catch a glimpse of the true content of her character. She reveals the deepest desire in her heart. This different kind of person is thirsty for a spiritual encounter with the living God. Here's what the Bible says. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. What she's saying is, tell me where to go to meet God. She's saying, "If, if I can't find value with my people, How can I find value with God? Am I worth anything to Him? Tell me where to go to worship Him so that I can be accepted by Him. Talk about a woman with a heart for God. Now, you might be saying, well, how can you say she has a heart for God when she's living in sin? Well, let me ask a question Do you have a heart for God? Do you ever sin repeatedly? You have any sinful habits that you just can't seem to break? You find yourself maybe caught up in a a cycle of some kind, a hopeless cycle that you can't get out of? You see, God does not wink at sin, but neither does he allow it to blind him to the condition, to the content, to the desire, the hunger, the thirst in a person's heart. King David was an adulterer and a murderer, but God said, but that's a man after my own heart. So I ask you today, what does your heart want? The woman immediately asks Jesus to tell her how to worship God. She doesn't say, hey, I see that you're a prophet. Will I ever have kids? Will I ever be happy? No, she wants to know about worship. That's what's deepest in her soul. But her question is all about religion and formality, she says, our people worship on this mountain, your people worship in that temple, which one is right? And Jesus answers her by not answering her. Look at what he says next, it's Jesus declared, believe me woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers The Father seeks. You see what he's saying? The Father's looking for worshipers. He says they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying the Father is not looking for religion. He's looking for friendship. He's looking for relationship. He's not looking for religious activity. Her question is all about rules and forms. His answer is all about authenticity and life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that what God wants most from you in worship is you. That's what he's looking for. He wants you. And then Jesus tells her something that he has never said so boldly and so directly to anybody in Scripture. Look at the text, verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. In this unlikely conversation, in an unlikely place, with an unlikely person, at an unlikely time, this different kind of person, this Samaritan woman, Jesus, for the first time, openly, publicly declares that he is the Messiah. And I find it so fascinating, but so like Jesus, that his first public declaration that he is the Christ was not made to Jewish men, but to a Samaritan woman, a different kind of person. A woman with a heart for God. Imagine the dignity that he just affirmed in her life. So I wanna come back to a question that Anthony asked a moment ago. Who are the Samaritans in your world? Who are the people who are different from you? You got any people in your life who are not the right kind of people, or so you've been told? Let's be careful how we judge the spiritual thirst of people that we might not think are spiritual at all people that we couldn't imagine would even be remotely interested in Jesus. Just because a person has had a rough life doesn't mean that their heart cannot be softened by the right word at the right time. A little dignity goes a long way. A simple conversation over a point of common ground. Can I have a drink of water? A simple conversation over a point of common ground can change a life for eternity. So who are the Samaritans in your world? And do you need to rethink how you think about them? I wanna ask another question, Will's question. What are you thirsty for today? Why are you here? Jesus is waiting at your well. You might be thirsty for the water of love. Jesus is waiting at your well. Maybe you're thirsty for the water of forgiveness. Jesus is waiting at your well. You might be thirsty for the water of hope, the water of purpose, of meaning, of significance. You might be thirsty for the water of freedom. Jesus is waiting at your well. And he offers you a drink of his living water so that you will never have to be thirsty again. He offers you dignity. He offers you relationship, fulfillment, value. Those broken dreams of yours can be a part of your story with Jesus. He will meet you right where you are. He's waiting at your well. And he asks you to do this. He asks you to accept his invitation to friendship, to enter a conversation with him, and to take a drink of his living water and taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have never done that before, if you've never tasted the living water that Jesus offers, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that right now. This is your moment. That's why you're here. You may think that you came here on your own volition, but that doesn't mean it was your idea. God brought you here today because he wants you to know that he loves you. And he has what you're looking for. So let's pray about this. Would you bow your heads with me? And as I pray, why don't you let my prayer be your prayer? Father, thank you for your word that gives us such hope and such direction on how you want us to live our lives. And today, Lord, you've challenged us on how we look at people who are not like us Lord, would you help me to look at them the way Jesus looks at them? Lord, give me your eyes to see. Give me your ears to hear. Give me a heart to understand who people are and where they're coming from and what you want for them. Forgive me if I have misjudged. Lord, soften my heart toward the people that you care so much about. And if you're one of those people who I just asked have never opened your life to Christ before, you've never tasted that water before, just pray this way in your heart, in the quietness of your heart. Just say, Lord Jesus, I, I don't understand all of this, but I just know that I need your living water. I wanna have a relationship with you. I wanna enter that friendship. I wanna start the conversation. And so today, Lord, with as much as I know how, I open my heart to you. And I ask you, Lord, to come into my heart, come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to quench my thirst. I'm so thirsty. Lord, quench my thirst for the water of life. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, amen.